Thank you guys for bearing with us. Um, I actually have like a three or four hour seminar and all that stuff to try to condense it in one session. It's kind of a, kind of a challenge. So uh, grateful though, as we go through younger years, one of the things that I want to stress as we begin this session too, which I simply called teens and cultural worlds, is that uh, it is a difference if you kind of have little kids and you kind of maintain the connection, as Kayla, you've mentioned, into like the moments where you have like important conversations, right? Things that are maybe more injurious or hurtful that your kids could engage. Uh, if you build kind of a trust there, um, it's going to be um, easier to talk about more serious things. And so my wife and I, and I'm going to embarrass my daughter for a second, my wife and I had this conversation when Kayla uh, stepped into womanhood, let's just say that, and then my wife uh, called me on the phone, I was driving from New Jersey to North Carolina, and she said, hey, Kayla started today, and I was like, started what? Uh, <laughs> you know, and I was being obnoxious, um, and she said, you know, um, don't bring it up, it'll embarrass her, and I was like, okay, and I was like, she's going to tell me though. And she was like, no, she's not. I'm a woman. I know she's not going to talk to you about this. Leave it alone. I was like, okay, I'll leave it alone. So I get there. It's 4th of July. We're having hot dogs and everything. I get there. They're eating. I show up, eat food, eat a hot dog, go in the kitchen, right, to get another one. Well, she just follows me in the kitchen. And then she said, guess what, Dad? And then told me. Uh, and so um, I thought it was funny so I could get a one-up on my wife. Um, but it also, for me, meant that, that my daughter was in a comfortable place to talk to me about anything. Um, and I felt like later on important for other things that we've talked about. You know, we, I've been doing uh, something called uh, uh, knucklehead training with my daughters uh, since they were like two and four years old, literally. They had beds that were um, right next to each other. They shared a room, and I would like, you know, read to them at night, tell them stories at night, and they would manipulate me by saying, read another chapter, read another chapter. And my wife was like, you know, they just want to stay up later and they're just doing that to you, wrapping you around their finger. And I was like, of course, who else gets to be wrapped around their finger but me? I'm their dad. So I'll read another chapter. It's not a bad thing, right? Uh, it's a good thing. So I would uh, interact with them and I started doing this thing called knucklehead training with them so that they would, at a very young age, be able to see, spot, put a heat-seeking missile on knucklehead males in this world. Right? See that little boy back talking his mom and slapping his brother around? Knucklehead, right? See, see, see the way that guy's talking about females? That is not the way you speak about people. Knucklehead. Oh, he said something about you're behind? No, 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 no. Knucklehead, right? Now, now that's funny, but what, what that meant, though, when later on there were more mature conversations that you need to talk about, about the kind of guys that are in the world, easier to do. Okay, so everything when they're little comes into these teen years. Many forces as your kids become older teenagers, they're transitioning into culture. Remember that graph? Culture becomes a more dominant thing in people's lives. Many things are going to shape your, you can't help it, right? Other people around them, other things, other ideas when they get, start getting out into education and things. But I want to say this, your kids can also shape the world they're going into, I can't tell you how many parents obsessively focus on, will the world mess up my kids? We have never had that focus on our children. We know the world can mess them up and there are dangers in the world, right? But our focus is how do we raise them on purpose, for a purpose, in the mission of God in the world? 
oh, I don't know if having kids today, I, somebody said this. We were at a church in Kentucky one time, my wife and I, when we were visiting church, and they go, I don't know if you should have kids today. The pastor said this. I'm like, who's this guy? The world's so hard and difficult and dark. Bringing kids to the world, that's a challenge. I don't know, that's very, I was like, that's why we have kids, right? Perspective. We're raising our kids, right, for the purposes of God in this generation. Not simply to hide them from the world so they don't get messed up. It's a perspective change. Now, as you transition your kids as they get older into the teenage years, um, quite literally when they're very, very little, mom and dad are out front. As kids get older, they come more and more side by side. I appreciate, Kayla, what you said at the end, like we become brothers and sisters. Like when we're growing up Christians, we're following Jesus. There is that reality, right? But you have to realize your teenagers need to step into their own life. Illustration that I used with Kayla uh, came from a weird TV show. Um, <laughs> my kids were really into a show called Man vs. Wild. Uh, this is a British special forces guy named Bear Grylls. Like he goes, hey, I'm going to go jump in the Himalayas and live for a week because I can, right? And he's like doing all this stuff. Here's how you get water. And if you fall into a frozen lake, you buck naked. Here's how you get out and don't die. It's this great show, right? Here's, okay, I've got to make a raft. And he's getting his shoestrings out and wrapping things and going on a stick down the Amazon or something, right? How does he do that, right? And so uh, because that was constant and uh, present in our, in our lives, when Kayla was heading to the teen years, I just had this talk with her. Where, where I wanted her to be clear about some things. Now, what she shared with you, we both said, I want to stay close with you. You want to stay close with me. Because we value this, what are the challenges? And so I used what I called the Bear Grylls River Talk with, with, with Kayla. And so Bear Grylls can literally take a stick and go down a level five rapids river, right? Why? Wisdom. He knows that this kind of motion of water means there's a big rock that you can crack your head on. And he knows that this thing is a swirling eddy that will suck you under. Uh, and it's dangerous, right? But he knows how to navigate it. And so in, in, in this metaphor, I think, works great for the teen years. Because look, when your kids are little, they are in your boat. As they get older, they start driving their own boat. And so I say to look, hey, look, it's been like this, but now it's going to change. That change is good. If we navigate it well, we can stay close and we can do well together in this world. You're going to have your own boat now. We're both going to be on the river. Here's the mistakes we could make. I can act like you're still five and think you're still in my same boat and try to control you, hold you down, hold you back. And you know what? That will frustrate you. So here's what I need from you. I need you to let me know when I do that. If I'm doing that, just tell me, hey, Dad, I got this. Hey, I need, to, I need some decision making here. I, I need my own email. I need, I'm old enough to have a phone. I'm old enough to this kind of conversations, right? You know what this mistake you can make when you're in your own boat? You know what? I, I, I have some wisdom. I've been around a little bit longer in life. You know me. You trust me. I may say, hey, hey, hey that's a boulder, and it'll crack your head open. That, that thing there is going to suck you under. I just want in those moments for you to still trust my voice so that you can, you can navigate that well. And if, and if we do that well, I don't over control you and you don't become this person who doesn't listen to anybody, right? We can navigate forward 
as teenagers. Now, Bear Grylls, Riverdale, that's my kind of thing because we were watching Man vs. Wild. But whatever you do, you have to verbalize that transition and then start giving space to it, reality to it. Uh, if you don't, you will either push your kid down, not let him do anything. And you know what I've seen? I was in campus ministry, my wife and I, uh, uh, for, for eight years, right after college. And you know what I saw? Kids that were, were held down, not allowed to do anything or anything on their own, no decisions, no thinking, nothing. They go to college, you know what they do? <laughs> Many times from a religious context. Because you know what happens? Uh, when things, uh, are they, they don't know anything about anything in the world, they just jump into it. And then they're gone. So the transition is important as kids go into cultural worlds. There's two words I want to give you for that. Uh, what is their posture and what is our place? What is our posture as we engage with the cultural worlds around us and the people around us? And what place do we have? Where do we see our place? What I mean by posture, our posture as a family is that we wanted to be respectful servants living a mission together with God. How we engage others, number one, love. Love. This is our posture in the world, love. Why? God commands us, love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love our neighbor as ourself. Jesus told us, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Our flow or posture as a family, as people going into culture, is love. Number two, gentleness. Gentleness. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. The Lord's servant should not be quarrelsome. Right? Um, we're to restore people who are uh, in sin with a spirit of gentleness. We are to give an answer or reason for the hope that we have, 1 Peter 3.15, with gentleness and respect. This is our flow. This is our posture with other people. Love, gentleness. Number three, I just said the word respect. We respect human beings. Why? God made them. God made uh, the world. He made human beings in his image and likeness, right? Male and female. That people deserve our respect. We should honor people. We should have compassion for other people. Simply because they're precious things that God has made. So how do you send your teenagers in cult? They want respectfulness, right? That's why when they're five and they're disrespectful, you discipline that. Love, gentle respects. Number four, our posture, clarity. Clarity. We are not in the world to be unclear about our commitment to Jesus Christ, our purpose in his mission, and our clarity on what we believe. It is not unkind to have clear beliefs and a clear identity in Christ. We said this like a mantra. We still say it today. No, remember who you are by remembering whose you are. And by that, you're part of the Monaghan home team. You belong to this family. Our family is in covenant with Jesus Christ. We bear his name. Your identity, your convictions are clear as we go into cultural worlds. Love, 
gentleness, respect, clarity, and number five, conviction. Conviction. Your kids are going to have to stand somewhere in this world and stand with someone, we hope, as a follower of Christ, and stand on biblical convictions. We wanted our kids to have convictions and develop them and then have courage to stand in them in the world. Now, what does this look like? My, uh, my middle daughter developed a pro-life conviction. Both of our daughters did, actually. Um, not from me kind of preaching pro-life stuff to them. It wasn't kind of like a thing that, that we really did. They asked about abortion at one point. I, I don't remember how old they were. And we talked openly about what it is. And we talked about pro-choice arguments and why people would do that. And we talked about it holistically. And I answered all their questions. And we talked about it a lot. And they developed convictions. So much, though, that it's my middle daughter is very, 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 very convicted about this issue. And she was in eighth grade. um, And one of the wrestling coaches... uh, uh, social studies class, Coach Wade, um, and, and they were learning about American political systems, right, and learning about our political parties and what progressivism and liberalism and conservatism is, and they were listing out what are some of the things that conservatives, and one of them was pro-life principle, right, was listed in the classroom, and then this is like, this was, if I didn't know Coach Wade, I, I would kind of want to choke him, because this is not cool what they did in the classroom, um, he would let me choke. He's a wrestling coach. But uh, he, he basically said, all right, we're going to make T-shirts to say whether we're a conservative or a liberal, and then we're going to put them on, and you're going to go stand in a certain part of the room. My eighth grade daughter went st- stood by herself, right? College town, public school. She went and stood by herself because she was pro-life. And I asked her, hey, how'd that feel? She goes, I was fine. That's what I believe." <laughs> Middle school, conviction to stand in that's not unkind, but Kyleen is also, one of her friends said, I can't believe you're a conservative. Well, at least don't be racist, is what she said to her. She's like, why would you think I'm racist? I'm not. In fact, I'm very anti that. Posture, we want respectful servants living a mission together. Place, place, what is our place in culture? A countercultural community connected to the world for influence. Countercultural community, connect. how do you push back front line? Love God, love people, push back darkness. How do you do that? You got to be in the world in a certain way, with hopefully with a posture, right, for influence. Now, Christians have debated uh, where, what is the place, what is the place of Christianity or the church in culture. And I'll throw this up there because it's fun and I like it. Um, but this is an interaction that's t- taken place for thousands of years. What is our place in this cultural world, right? What role does the Christian community have amongst the Roman Empire? Or if you're in a tribal government situation, or if you're under communism even, or how do we see ourselves as relating to the broader Culture. The ideas here come from two books, one that was written in 1951 called Christ and Culture, one in 2012 by D.A. Carson called Christ and Culture Revisited. This slide is simply a summary. There are those who would say Christ against culture, right? We're here to fight the world, right? Uh, there are those who say Christ of culture, that the, the, the Christian community kind of is the world, 
I call these people traitors personally, but they're like, hey, it's no difference, right? What is that, right? Or in the middle, it's like, hey, the kingdom of God, the kingdoms of people, those are two separate things, right? How do they interact? I don't know, but they're separate, right? There's like this two kingdoms idea. Martin Luther taught this very much so. He was, he was reacting to the, the Roman Catholic Church that was kind of Christ of culture kind of thing. Or uh, Christ above culture. We dictate, the church dictates the culture, Right? And then finally, Christ as transformer, Christians and culture to be transforming culture, be a redemptive force within it, right? That's the position that I personally take. And I do think that's probably the position of frontline for sure. We are in this world. In some ways, we are of it. We're speaking English. We're driving on a certain side of the road. We're, you know, I like smoking barbecue, right? There, there are cultural things. I'm using an iPad. That we're very much involved in. But our identity, our allegiance comes from Christ. And so our place in the world is to serve the world, share the gospel of the world, and see things transformed. Our kids can know that. What's your purpose going to college, right? What is, where do you stand with your, with, your, with your homosexual friends, with your atheist friends, with your other friends? Well, I'm a Christian, and I love these people, and I'm here to be a redeeming influence for Jesus Christ in this place. The church is a countercultural community on a mission with people. Now, because of that, what happens in the lives of in all of our lives and particularly in the lives of young people, when we bump into things in culture, there can be tremors and earthquakes and conflict even. A friend of mine uh, named David Mahan, who runs something called the Rivendell, it's a Lord of the Rings reference, the Rivendell Institute for Christian Thought and Learning at Yale University. It's a group of smart Christians basically trying to influence the academy. Uh, and Dave gave me this idea several years ago called cultural fault lines. You know, a fault line, you know, say the San Andreas Fault in California is where two uh, plates come together. And when they move, right, you have a Richter scale to measure, measure the power of the earthquake. And when Christianity comes in contact with various cultural ideas and views, there can be a little bit of friction and a little bit of tremors and earthquakes. And so just think about some basic concepts that we have maybe in our civilization. Uh, the idea of authority. Who's in charge? The cultural answer to that might be different than our family's answer to that, our church's answer to that, right? God's in charge? No, I'm in charge. Individualism, right? Freedom. Freedom. I had a friend one time tell me, like, I can't live in New Jersey because I believe in freedom. And he moved to Texas, true story. Um, and he said, I think I got freedom idolatry. I worship, I was like, maybe you do. We don't question some of these baseline things about our culture, right? That we, we like freedom, so we're like, oh, that's always good, right? But, uh, you know, are we free to do whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want, to whoever we want? No, we're not. But these ideas of our culture, authority, freedom, epistemology, that's the big word for saying, how do we know things are true or not? Right? If you ask somebody, okay, how do you know what's true? That's going to be a very different answer, perhaps, than maybe a Christian one. What is our view of the future? Right? Um, a lot of times, if you watch a lot of science fiction like I do, the view of the future might be like, have you ever seen the movie WALL-E, little Pixar movie, Right? The future is the earth, the trash dump. We're on a starship with our infotainment systems, drinking protein shakes, 
floating around with no bone density. Amen, right? It's like, what? What? <laughs> what, what is our view of the future, right? Or uh, what about our own identity? Who defines who you are? How does the culture answer that question? How do we answer that question? You know what happens when some of these ideas hit together? Earthquakes. And, and I only share this because like, we need to prepare our children for these things. Hey, you're going you're gonna to have some person demand that you honor some identity they're giving themselves that you might fundamentally disagree with. How are you going to interact with those things? So in sending our kids, we want to send them with a certain posture that they get from the gospel in our homes into a certain place. Why are we in the world? What's the purpose for us there? Um, and then there's two principles I want to give you for the sending of our teens into the world. And I'm going to use a metaphor, forgive me, from, uh, from uh, the, the immune system health of human beings, right? <laughs> we talk about that in our society. Um, so the two words I want to give you are health and inoculation. And look, if you're a vaxxer or a no-vaxxer, I don't want to talk about that, okay? I just want to use the concepts. Fair enough? All right. Health and inoculation. What I mean by health, as you're raising kids from the time they were little, you're building a system into them. You're building life into them, good teaching, solid truth, so that they, when they come into contact with things, they recognize it. Right, a healthy body uh, rejects pathogens by its design and goes to war against them, right? Building healthy systems into your kids. This came, this came uh, out for me when I was watching uh, the show, this TV show where they create an appetizer course and then they make a main course and a dessert course and they're competing for like $10,000, right? You know what show I'm talking about? Chopped. Anybody, anybody watch Chopped? The cooking show, right? We watched it a lot. And, and I remember, because you, you never know when things are going to come in contact with your children. Like, when is the first time your teenage son's going to see pornography? You don't know. Right? You don't. When is the first time they're going to interact with, you know, uh, transsexual, transsexuality or transgenderism? You don't know. And for us, we, we were watching this show Chopped, and my, do my daughter Kylie, Kayla's sister, um, she was little, man, probably like seven, eight years old. And we were watching Chopped, and this, this woman started talking trash about her dad. Like, he, my dad's religious, and I don't like him, and I was like, oh, I can see where this is going. And, and my daughter was like, she, she, she was, had this really uh, kind of like blunt personality when she was little, and, and she would just say stuff like really prophetic. She doesn't talk a lot, but she just blows stuff up sometimes, you know, and she's like, I don't like this woman. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was like, what's going on? And I, and I saw where it was going, right? And she's like, she's disrespectful about her dad. And I'm like, Yeah. And then, and then the next thing was like, my, the lady said on TV, and my dad doesn't accept my wife. And then Kai goes, she's confused. <laughs> Literally. She didn't know anything about homosexuality, gay marriage, lesbianism. Didn't know anything about it. But just in her own understanding of life, the universe, and the world, right, because when she was little, you know, they had mommy and daddy washcloths and they were marrying them and then moms and dads and babies and where they come from, right? And God made this, an image of God, teaching and catechisms, all the stuff that's in the 36-page thing that we did with our children, right? So when she heard something, she's like, I don't like this, 
because she's disrespecting her father. That didn't seem right to her. And then when she said, my wife, she's confused. Now, she wasn't getting into all the level of things, but her first interaction with homosexuality was that. And she wasn't harsh to this lady or disrespectful to her in that way. It's just what her system saw was, I don't like disrespectfulness to her father. That doesn't seem right. And why would she say she's married to a woman, right? Health systems. Now, remember, if you develop kindness, love, respect, and later on when Kylene was in middle school and her friend said, hey, I'm a lesbian, she was kind to this young girl. And when later, a year or two later, that girl's making out with a boy and, and sleeping with him in the theater room of the high school, right? She's respectful and kind to this girl and is trying to influence her, right, uh, for good in her life. So building healthy systems. Second, inoculation. Inoculation. There's a tendency to think that isolating our children from things is the best pathway. But in reality, we need to, while kids are with us, begin to expose them to different ideas and so that they understand them and they understand the arguments people use for them so that when they encounter them in the wild, it's not the first time. Um, and so inoculation, this is a, from an article from a ministry called Stand to Reason. So ministry out of California, led by a gentleman named Greg Kokel. Um, and this is one of the, the staff there named Alan Schliemann. Uh, and he wrote this essay called Inoculate, Don't Isolate. And I think it's very helpful. Now, it does use a viral kind of metaphor, which, which I think will be helpful. He says this, it's tempting to shelter young believers from false ideas. We think we're protecting them, but we end up isolating them. This backfires because we don't prepare them to dialogue with those who disagree with them. When they encounter a false idea, young believers can be caught off guard. They're more likely to be seduced into believing something that we've worked really hard to protect them from. Instead, we need to inoculate young believers against false ideas. This is similar to the way we inoculate against a virus. To vaccinate against polio, for example, you ingest an attenuated or weakened virus. Your immune system then responds, producing antibodies, cells that will kill and seek and destroy this particular virus. That way, when your body is exposed to polio in the real world, your immune system isn't caught off guard. It neutralizes the threat with an army of antibodies. Inoculating young believers against a false idea works the same way. And then he says this, inoculating young Christians against a false idea works the same way. You teach them the errant view, why people believe it. This was in our conversation about why are people pro-choice, right? Uh, what are the arguments for that? What's wrong with those reasons? That way, when they come across someone who holds that view, they're not surprised by the person's argument. Maybe their college professor's argument. The young believer easily recognizes their reasoning and is ready to respond. Now, this becomes quite difficult when you walk into complex ideas in the world. Sometimes we can feel, how do we do this? 
The world's always changing. Uh, things that our kids will encounter are different than things you maybe encountered just you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Certainly different in every generation. One of the things we must realize is that Christian followers of Jesus in every culture and every generation will encounter things that are contrary to the gospel. And they're different, right? They're different today than maybe they were in other generations, but we have our own. And so I want to give an example as I close my time before we do some questions to talk about one that our kids are coming across all the time. Certainly did in public school, certainly are on the university campus, you certainly are in your workplace, the area of gender and sexuality, okay? Gender and sexuality, Ryan T. Anderson wrote a book called When Harry Became Sally. This book is now banned from Amazon. Quite literally, you can't buy it there anymore. Uh, he's a PhD, he's a smart guy, but you can't buy the book anywhere. He said this, not long ago, most Americans had never heard of a transgender identity, but within the space of a year, it became a cause claiming the mantle of civil rights. A discordant gender identity is said to represent who a person really is by contrast with the sex assigned to them at birth. And therefore, and this is important, any failure to accept this, support this, amounts to bigotry. So our kids, if they don't agree with certain ideologies, will say, you're a hateful, bigoted person. There are now biological, biological males... Uh, winning state track titles against biological females. This is a picture from Connecticut. Um, there's a, a biological female taking, basically taking steroids because Texas law says you have to compete against your own sex. So uh, a female on steroids just savaging girls in wrestling in the state of Texas. Martina Navratilova, probably the, one of the best tennis players of all time, a lesbian and somewhat of an activist in that space, uh, said this about transgender people in sports. It's insane and it's, in, it's cheating. I'm happy to address a transgender woman in whatever form she prefers, but I would not be happy to compete against her. It would not be fair. Martina Navratilova was savaged for saying that. Or J.K. Rowling, the author of the Harry Potter books, in the name of feminism, spoke out against certain transgender ideology, savaged on Twitter. I read some of it. She's a hateful bigot. Facebook. You can, this is 2014. 58 gender options. Uh, 71 in the United Kingdom. Others today list 72. Still others in my research just uh, this week. 112 gender options are for what gender a person can be. My favorite on the list is two-spirited. I'll let you Google that. Um, <laughs> I did that with my teenage daughters, what, two, three years ago. We, what is that? Let's Google it. Oh, that's what that is. So I want to give you an example of how to engage this with your teens and maybe even just for yourself. And again, I know my time is limited, so I won't do it justice. But so, hey, what are, we, what are you're like, hey, kids, what are they talking about at school with this stuff? Uh, homosexuality. Well, that's same-sex romantic and sexual relationships with male-to-male, female-to-female. Sex and gender. Today, someone says sex has to do with biology, your immutable characteristics like your chromosomes, your, your, your plumbing, etc. Gender has to do with a socially constructed understanding of human persons and their own self-identification and understanding. Gender dysphoria. Talk about this with your children, right? It, it, most today are following the work of a psychologist, a psychiatrist named Mark Yarhouse. Uh, 
who wrote a book called Understanding Gender Dysphoria. Uh, Andrew T. Walker, in his book God and the Transgender Debate, uh, uh, quotes this, his, his research. Some people feel their gender identity does not align with their biological sex. When someone experiences distress or inner anguish or discomfort for sensing a, con- a conflict between their gender identity and their biological sex, that person is experiencing gender dysphoria. And, and people experience this, right? A mismatch between their gender that matches their biological sex and the gender that they feel themselves to be. Now, the research has shown, right, between 80 and 95% of children that express this discordant gender identity will come to identify with their bodily sex if natural development is allowed to proceed. But unfortunately today, this is very controversial, we're blocking puberty with medication so that that doesn't happen, and we're holding off to where that you can have sex reassignment through hormones or even the mutilation of our bodies, right, at some point. What is transgenderism? Biological sex is one way. Sex and identity inner feelings another way. Transphobia. Your kids need to know what that word means. Transphobia is intolerance for gender diversity. It's based around the idea that there are two sexes, male or female, which you stay in from birth. Those are just definitions, right? Uh, That if we're going to engage... I I shared some of this material for like over an hour with a group full of teenagers at a youth apologetics conference two years ago in Kentucky with four or five churches present. They were very much able to understand that, and your kids can too. These issues are also personal. They're about persons, right? They're not just about hy- hypothetical concepts. My own cousin, uh, we called him Bobo. His name was Joe, died of AIDS uh, from his lifestyle. It was the first funeral I ever did as a pastor. I was 31 years old. My favorite cousin died of AIDS, and I was asked to do his funeral by his mom, my Aunt Teresa, Aunt Titi. And his friends, his homosexual community friends were all there. My family was there, and I'm doing my first funeral. Very personal uh, for me. This involves a certain view that conflicts or comes into contact with Christian views about what we are, right? And it's a complex issue. It involves biology, chromosomal and genetic reality, sexual organs and reproductive powers, hormone levels and manipulations of those. It involves sociology. Right? There's a reality today in our society that happened really quick. The disagreement is not tolerated. Historical views are presented now only as hatred and bigotry. There's pressure, psychological pressure, in schools, in the media, in workplace, demanding conformity or else. Demanding our children's conformity or else. It involves theology. What does Scripture say about this? It involves pastoral love and concern for human persons. And our churches must be places that love people. We must be places that someday, if somebody has removed bodily organs through, through, through surgery and then is, is left empty and comes to want to know about Jesus, that they could have a place in our church. Remember, as you engage an issue as complex as this with your children, posture and place. What is our posture? Respectful, humble, we're servants, we're clear, we're convictional. In your household, are you slandering homosexual people? One of Kayla's best friends is a homosexual guy she met in theater. Still to this day. She, they know what each other believes. 
They, they interact on it sometimes. She's present with him. We're praying for him, right? Do we slander people? Do we really hate people? Do we, do we, do we say bigoted things? Or do we love and respect people made in the image of God? Our place, though, in culture, we're a counter-cultural community. We view our family that way as we come into contact with different people. We want our church to be that way. We had people in our church in New Jersey that were all kinds of sexual ideas. And they, they were like, wow, I know they don't hate me. But man, I don't like what, I don't, they don't agree with me either. We want to be connected with people for love, influence, and mention. So how do we talk about this? Posture in place. For instance, maybe your kid would be asked in high school, are you and your family transphobic? Are you and your family homophobic at that church over there, front line? How do you answer that question? <laughs> um, one thing sometimes you have to, uh, I have to remind you, sometimes <laughs> you need to listen to Adam Ragbar. It's a trap, right? <laughs> we like sci-fi, sorry. We are unwise for ourselves or to train our children to answer this with something like, well, you know how a light socket works, don't you? That's how it works. Right. That's not a good answer, right? Amen. Because this question could be loaded, it could have consequences. It could be about time where someone's going after your daughter or son asking that question. We want to answer with care. And I suggest an indirect approach. That we need somebody, hey, is your family transphobic or homophobic? Um, is God homophobic in your church? How do you answer that? Well, I would usually start by a question. Hey, what do, you, what, what do you mean by, what do you mean by God? Because I actually don't know, right? I don't know what a person thinks about God. What do you mean by, by homophobic, right? Do you, do you mean like I actively hate people? Oh, of course not, of course not. Well, would you, would you, would you like to know what I actually believe about that? That's a great question to ask me. Hey, uh, do you really want to know what I believe about that? Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. No, I'm, here, I'm actually here to just proclaim things and yell them at you. Well, if that's the case, we shake the dust off our feet. Like, don't deal with that. Uh, well, I'm sorry, man. If you really want to have a conversation and really want to, know, want to know what I believe about that, I'd be happy to share that. But if you just want to yell at me or, or call me names or call me a bigot, I, we don't need to do that. Move on. But if they say, yeah, I really would like to know what you believe about that. Well, it's great. Well, we believe that God created all things. That God created the universe and space, time, and energy, and he created human beings special after his own image and likeness, male and female, to be complementary creations, embodied creatures. That God created us and our bodies, and our bodies are good. Nancy Pearson, in her book, Love Thy Body, said this, Christianity holds that the body and soul form together in integrated unity and the human being is an embodied soul. Today, secular culture is falling back into a dualism that denigrates or puts down the material realm, the body, just as ancient paganism did. As in the early church, it's Orthodox Christians, believing Christians, who have a basis for defending a high view of a human body. 
So we believe the body is important and sacred, that we shouldn't abuse and misuse and hurt other people's bodies, that somebody else's body doesn't exist for my own uh, objectification or desires or pleasures or abuse. We don't believe that. We believe that God made human beings, male and female, and our bodies, and that is good. So that's one of the things I believe. We're sexual creatures, and God designed the bodies to reproduce other human beings and other people. I believe those things. Yeah, but are you homophobic? (laughs) Well, I believe in that. I believe that we're embodied good things that God made. Now, that's biblical truth number one. We're embodied sexual creatures. You know, there's something else I hold. You know, this, we always like to discuss marriage, right? Usually in our culture, it's kind of like a, a legal arrangement for finances or survivorships or who gets to go see who in the hospital, that kind of thing. Um, we actually believe that marriage is this covenant, that it's a promise between two people before God. But not only that, that we believe that marriage actually represents of God's committed faithful love for his people. And so when we say marriage, we mean that God has actually made this thing to reflect something about his purpose in his design. A man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. They become one flesh. That's sex. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of them love his uh, wife, let a husband love his wife as himself, and the wife respects her husband. That marriage itself was given by God to, for procreation, fruitful and multiplication, unifying people, right? That we would be naked and unashamed, right? The Bible says naked and unashamed, not na- naked and afraid. Man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. They will become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. We believe this is for the good of people. And it reflects who God is in his faithful, promise-making, promise-keeping love. So this is what I believe. And I think that human beings can be selfish and pervert this, that in sin we can, we can use each other's bodies and not hold them sacred, and we can say marriage is whatever we make it to be, but we believe that God designed us and our bodies and marriage uh, for the glory of God and not simply for our own selfish pleasures or for worshiping of sexuality. That's what I believe. So if you're asking me if I'm homophobic, no, I'm not. I don't hate gay people, but this is what I believe about the world. Posture, love, respect, gentleness, clarity, conviction. Where? Place uh, in the world. And this, this is also why, friends, this is, I remind myself this. This is why my marriage matters. This is why our honoring of marriage matters. This is why hus- uh, kids respecting their parents matters. This is why children matter. This is why the church matters. That it might be welcoming community of grace for people, but distinctive and marked out by the gospel and not simply becoming the world. And there's a myriad upon myriad of things that you might engage your kids about that they're interacting with culture. What do we think about race? What do we think about justice? What do we think about sexuality? What do we think about use of media? What do we think about Coors Light? What do we think about these things in the world? It's bad, by the way. Coors Light's a nasty little beer. <laughs> my opinion. My, my opinion. There are better things. <laughs> better things, friends. <laughs> Why? 
Christ died for sinners of whom we're foremost. His call to us is to turn from sin and self to him and allow God to order our lives. And that means our bodies, our marriages, our homes, our churches, and how we stand, posture, in the place of the cultural world we're seeing, including the high school or the college campus, wherever God might take us to be. All right, we're going to close uh, with just uh, you know, 10, 15 minutes of some questions. I know we started a little late. We'll go a few minutes over. But um, I think Kale will describe to you the process by which we will, we will do that. For sure. Thanks, Reed. Uh, yeah, so uh, like you said, about 10 minutes of Q&A. Um, we're going to have a number up on the screen that you guys can text in if you have a question. But we're also going to have a uh, microphone on a stand right here in the middle if you want to just come down here and uh, do it in person. So, uh, yeah. Let us uh, set up for that. I'll take just a couple of seconds. Really, anything at all? <laughs> Good. I don't know we'll have an answer for everything you ask, but <laughs> you can ask it. You can just be tall. Okay. Is this on? Okay, cool. Are you okay? All right, uh, so we got a couple that have uh, already texted in. So here's the first one. Uh, how did your teaching or language change when you taught your kids before they were Christians and then after? I, 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 my, your view of your children and their state before God um, is important here. Um, now, Different Christian communities disagree on these things. I am a person that does believe in conversion, that the kids have to become Christians themselves. We baptize them at that point in time. That's what I believe. But at the same time, God has put us in these uh, unities called families, and that the promises of God, I believe, were for my children as well. And so we always taught taught our children the faith as if it belonged to them, because in one way it does, right? Obviously, they have to make their own commitment, so they grew up into that, and at that time that they began to do it, we didn't talk to them different, like, oh, this doesn't apply to you now, it only applies to you after you throw your stick in the fire at youth camp or something when you're 14. We didn't do that, <laughs> right? Like, my wife grew up that way. I didn't. I was like, hey, look, the prompt, Acts chapter 2, the promises are for you and your children's children uh, and those who are far off, right? So we, the promises of God, we taught them. Uh, we catechized them. We taught them the faith. And, and they, all of our kids are believers uh, now. I'm, that's no guarantee. I also know maybe they're not. Maybe they won't be. That's God's grace saving people. Our role was to teach them Christianity. And for us, it was more like uh, linguistic, conceptual ability and age, right? Like, you know, let's now talk about justification by faith, three-year-old. <laughs> like, you're like, like, hey, God accepts you in Jesus because Jesus died for you. That's what you talk about, right, as they grow up. So age appropriateness was more our concern rather than, kind of like treat them like they're, you're a hell-bound heathen six-year-old. No, we taught them the, the faith of God, right? But I think something, too, that I've always appreciated and that a lot of my friends have found kind of crazy when my siblings and I will explain it is that my parents never said, you're now going to be a Christian. They're very clear, like, you're, you ha- you're make a decision. Like, we believe this is true. We want you to believe this. This is what we're living out as a family. But... You need to make that decision. And not only just, like, make a decision, you need to understand why you believe what you believe. And so that means ask any question you want. 
go for it. I might not have all the answers. They were, they were like, hey, we'll look that up. I don't know where you came up with that one kind of thing. But, um, <laughs> but that was very intentional that, like, I'm I personally, I'm not a Christian because I grew up in a Christian household. Now, am I a Christian because my parents taught it to me because I... We made you be. No. <laughs> I'm not a Christian because my parents said I had to be. Um, and, you know, I very much could not be if I wanted to be at this point. Um, but I learned and I asked questions. And then I decided, no, this makes sense. This is true. This is real. This is good. Um, and then now I'm talking to y'all. So. And the, and the spiritual reality is that God has to save our kids through the gospel and, and regenerate their hearts and so, so they're alive to him. Um, and that's God's work. And that happens through the, the, the teaching and preaching of the gospel right? and, and, and him awakening their hearts by the spirit to him. And then they, they commit. And their commitments, I would, I would maybe use like a deepening spiral over time, right? That they, they deepen in their own convictions and commitments as they, they've grown. And, and then we're like, you know, we, we sharpen each other. Like she was telling me what she's reading the Bible this morning and how many days that she's read the Bible. You know, she's got some goals and stuff. I'm like, wow, you're doing better than me. Um, and, and even like, you know, I've given her my Bible software login so we could share libraries and stuff because she's asking me some really good questions. I'm like, hey, you need to read this book, this commentary on Leviticus because it's talking about. He sent about me to college with so many books. Yeah. He was like, all right, you're going to need to learn these eventually. It might yeah, help. She left a stack of them in my office, actually. <laughs> Yeah. Too ambitious. That's helpful. Um, similar question. What did family worship look like in your household? Were there like times praying together, devotionals? Also, like uh, did, you mentioned catechisms. Can you speak to like what that looks like? Because there's a lot of those right now. You can go first if you want. Oh, uh, well, <laughs> to really dive into this, I know we keep plugging it. Read the 36 page thing. Um, uh, we've done a couple different things as a family, and that has changed as we've gotten older. Um, as well. So I know my mom still does, but doesn't always get her way. Um, really has committed to we're going to eat together as a family, um, using meals as a time of community. I'll let he can go into later about like more the theology behind that too, because um, there's some really interesting ways you can kind of explain the gospel through meals. Um, and then in terms of prayer stuff uh, at dinner, there's been a no device policy. That goes to everyone. Um, I need to be held, held accountable. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, we've done stuff like family prayer. We had to do, you know, something. We'd be grateful for something hard that's happened, something good that's happened. And I was always the scribe because I hate his handwriting. Um, and so we'd go around and everybody would share. Um, and just kind of being open with each other and then praying for each other. Um, another thing we've done... I'll let him do the catechism stuff because that's, I was Little. small. Um, but we would do uh, morning prayer. So there's a song that we sing, um, the steadfast love, that um, we would kind of all gather. At, mostly as we're leaving for school in the morning, backpacks on in a circle, um, just kind of singing together and then praying and him praying over all of us um, as we kind of went out into our day. Amen. I'll give you the two-minute version in the in the Old Testament, you'll see these, this language, uh, both in God, the covenant community of Israel, also when uh, Israel is in exile in the book of Daniel, you see it in the New Testament, that people met for certain hours of prayer, morning, noon, and night. 
Noon is kind of hard when people have jobs and things. And so in the modern world, these, there are opportune moments for us to pause before God. Morning, dinner time, bedtime. Uh, and, and because I didn't want to be a legalist, I encouraged men and myself to try to win two of three of those. Like, so maybe you're not a morning person. The morning's hard. So maybe you do uh, dinner time and bedtime, right? Um, bedtime's great when kids are little, right? Put them to bed, get a routine. It's actually good for their structure. Get them to bed. And so what can you do in these times, right? Um, morning prayer, we sang Lamentations 3, steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Mercy never comes to an end. Great is thy faithfulness. Pray of everybody. It's very simple morning prayer. Obviously, Caleb, I wanted to see what she shared first. Um, dinner time is a wonderful time to talk, to pray. We've done various things where we talked about the various meals in the Bible. Uh, in Genesis, the bankrupt banquet is what I called it when Adam and Eve punk out on God. Uh, the, the Passover feast where God's delivering people out of Israel. Teach them those stories, right, through the meals. Jesus eating the Passover as the Passover lamb celebrated the Lord's Supper, right? Uh, and then certainly the, the, the meal where Jesus, the wedding feast of the end of all time when the community is together. Kids get this, right? They can learn the whole Bible through like five meals that are in the Bible. It's very good. Covenants, the promises throughout the Bible, all in the 36-page deal. Catechisms, New City Catechisms, fantastic. It's in paper book form. They have a great iPad app that has a kitty-kitty version of it and an adult version. You tap it, it fills in the words. My kids still will say this phrase. To talk about God. Yeah, to talk about God. Because D.A. Carson's on there talking about the doctrine of God, like who is God, and he had this weird Canadian accent. And so my kids still do this around the house. To talk about God, right? Um, because, because I say it. And that's a simple question and answer time when your kids are little and their brains absorb. So, so try to make the most of those moments when you're together. And I said this to the staff of Frontline uh, yesterday when they, they all, your leaders of all the congregations came together and we talked about this. It's like, look, you use your ingenuity, your creativity, your excellence, your hard work in your jobs and other places. Why can't we uh, use some of those same tools to invest in these little people, Right. And then make it fun, right? Um, there's stuff in that document about how to develop life for their mind, their imaginations. Um, I remember with our kids, this little practice where I wanted to teach my kids virtue and goodness, right? And imagination. So I, I, we created this thing called Story in the Dark. You want to describe that briefly? Sure. Um, I'm laughing because <laughs> I, I, he hasn't done it in forever. But uh, we, me and my sister shared a room for a long time. And so he would come into our room at night. Uh, bedtime. Bedtime. Bed, yeah, yeah, you put us to bed and then. Come in your room yeah, at sorry, night. That's not... <laughs> <laughs> Scare them. <laughs> 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 yeah. Uh, yeah, and we'd turn out all the lights and he would sit in between our beds most of the time or, you know, alternate mm -hmm. um, and would tell us stories about Mickey Mouse because we love Mickey. Um, and then we learned, and I think we would pick a virtue. I yeah, think. I'd say just pick any virtue, something good about people. Yeah. And they say kindness or something. Yeah, and then there was Mickey Mouse and Tricky Mouse. And, <laughs> and Kayla and Kyleen, we were always included in the stories as well. I don't know why we loved it with us being with the mice, but we did. Um, and so he would just come up with on the fly a story about Mickey Mouse and Tricky Mouse, and Tricky Mouse would do something that wasn't kind. Um, and then he'd Tricky get, Mouse would mess up everything. Yeah, and, and then, then Tricky Mouse would get sad and because 
he didn't have any friends anymore um, or something, and then would come and eat, then, you know, we would, then Kayla and Kylene in the story would, would be kind would be kind and forgive him, and then we'd go to bed. Uh, it was great, and I, we still love him. The, the, the lesson, like, Kay, my wife was like, what do you do? I was like, I'm just making stuff up, man. Like, Tricky Mouse, he's like a little devil dude, just messing up the neighborhood and rolling around, doing stupid stuff. And, and like, you don't, you, kids don't expect you to be J.R.R. Tolkien. You're, they don't know you better, so he's making stuff up and then highlight you know kindness and virtue and selflessness and then you know Kylie and came and helped the little kid that Tricky Mouse just beat up and took his lunch money or something you know just random stuff but it was a bonding time imagination and then obviously uh uh, virtues like you know the fruit of the spirit right love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithful and self-control story those things right with and that was some fun stuff we we did I can still remember the pictures I made in my head of what I thought they all looked like with us. So. Wilding. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, last question for time. Um, how do you help older children to obey and respect authority if it's still a struggle in upper elementary? Um. It, it, it can be a struggle uh, at all times. I, you know, to be honest, I have probably the most, well, one of the most rebellious personalities in our family, maybe me oh, yeah. and you. And so uh, my kids correct me sometimes. Um, so, but as your kids get older, you want to do your best when they're little because uh, it's, a, it's the most opportune time. But as they get older, um, you're still dealing with consequences and discipline in a different way, right? Um, what gets through to your child might be different. So sometimes you have to take things away. You have to sequester things for the purpose of understanding, uh, respecting authority. And look, these things are not uh, one and done. They're not easy. Um, and so I would give you the same principles of perseverance or persistence in that discipline. And look, as long as you have, like my parents uh, did their best. My brother, my brother's messed up a lot in his life, ended up in jail, kicked out of the military. Um, but I watched my mom really try, 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 try to teach, to discipline, to try to correct. We have to do that. We're long-suffering in it. That's why parenting isn't about us. It's about God. It's not about whether they like us or not. So you have to persevere and hold your line. Don't constantly be shifting your rules, right? Um, your expectation is that they would, they would comply with your rules. And if they don't, you have to discipline them in the age-appropriate way. And you have to hold the line. You have to stay on the wall. Even if it feels like you're losing all the time, you have to persist and persevere until they're out of your home. And then you entrust them to God. And then, you know, if, you, if they're really crazy and they don't listen to anybody, oh, Lord, keep them out of jail. Keep them don't hurt people, you know. Um, but you, the, the same principles of discipline, principles, following of what your expectation are have to be consistent and followed through on. And it's hard. Uh, don't give up. Don't quit. Have, other, have a community of other parents. Um, that can sharpen you, hold your arms up, and you know, cry on their shoulder, encourage one another. Um, you want to have your kids around people that are kind of reinforcing things. That's helpful um, uh, as well. So um, do your best when they're little, though. If you, if you really work hard, it does. It, you have a better chance as they get older. Um, but I have a friend in Jersey. He's like, yeah, Nathan doesn't respond to anything. I was like, hey, stay at it. Stay at it. And... Um, just the last little thing, like use, like you never know who can connect to your kid either. If it's Lord willing, it's you, but if it's not, that doesn't mean that someone can't. Um, and so if that's a teacher, if that's 
a coach, if that's another parent at the church who's like, hey, I you know, have experience in this or whatever, don't be afraid to like be honest about the struggle with that. Um, and like, if, if someone else can help, then no one only just be like, oh, I guess, like embrace that. Yeah, yeah the community of the church too is, can be very helpful, reinforcing from multiple directions, ages, peers, older, younger. Well, hey, uh, thank you guys so much. This has been immensely helpful, and those answers were great. Um, there's uh, a few questions that we didn't have time for, and if that's you, um, both Reed and Kayla are going to be here in the front uh, a little bit after the seminar, so feel free to come up here and just pose those to them in person. Um, other than that, I'm going to turn it over to uh, Brandon High, our pastor of community, and uh, he will close us out. Thank you guys so much for being with us. I just want to hit a little briefly on what Reed just finished on, but I wanted to read Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. It says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so I, I think as your community pastor, I just wanted to communicate, hey, one way that we're really going to live this out and grow as parents is in, the, is in the context of our community groups. And so as a church, as we think about the church scattered throughout the week, this is a place where we're really going to seek to spur each other on and encourage one another. And so if you're a part of a community group already, I would just encourage you strongly to double down and really walk in this parenting thing in the context of the other parents in your group. And if you're not in a group, I would love to help you find one. That's my job. And so I, I would love to connect with you in the, in the lobby out afterwards and just talk about where you might be able to connect with a community group. And so I just wanted to mention that as, as an opportunity for those of you who might be looking for or trying to get plugged into a community group. So let me pray, let me pray for us, and then, and then we'll, we'll head out. Father God, I thank you uh, so much that you love us as a good father, that you, you want us relationally, that you want our hearts and as Reed mentioned earlier, you want our minds. You want us to know you. You want us to know your authority. You want us to walk in obedience to you because you love us. So thanks for pursuing us. Thanks for saving us. I pray for all the, the children and the families that are represented in this room tonight, God, that you, that you would work mightily in these little kids' hearts, these little kids' minds. That you would draw any wayward teen, teenagers back towards you. God, that you would give these parents courage and empower them by the Spirit uh, to teach and, and to admonish their kids towards loving you and being on mission and living counterculturally uh, for the sake of Jesus and what he's called us to as his followers. So, God, I pray that you would empower these parents. God, I pray that we would love our kids in the same way that you have loved us. Help us to do that. We can't do that on our own, but we desperately need you, and we need you to, to empower us. So, God, I love these people. I know that you love these people. So help us to be the parents that you've called us to be and help us to step into the role of parenthood and to be parents to our sons and daughters because you first loved us. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys are dismissed. Thanks for coming. <laughs>